Could you have your Bibles and may I invite you to turn them to John chapter 17, which Jonah read out for us earlier. And as you are finding your place, I want to begin by asking you all a question. What do you want to be when you were a child? It's a common question to ask children and young people, perhaps for some of you here this evening, that's exactly what you are thinking about. What do you want to be when you grow up? I remember once in junior school, I spent a whole lesson having this whole question asked to the whole class. And basically, I spent the whole lesson drawing a stick man on a hill and with a crown on its head. And in show-and-tell style, I got up to the front, stamping my feet really boldly and confidently. And so the teacher says, so, Tim lad, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I says, with loudness and boldness and absolute gusto, I want to be king. (laughs) Now, you'll be pleased to know that I have given up on such ambitions. But in any event... What do you really want to be? What's your passionate ambition? And I'm not just talking about job here. What are your dreams? What are you passionate about? Well, what we are going to see, what we're going to discover as we look at this remarkable prayer of the Lord Jesus over the next three weeks is what Jesus is passionate about. What really drives him And it's going to be very interesting to compare what he is absolutely committed to and what we are particularly focused on. We need to ask, is there a parallel here? Or are there differences? It's a remarkable prayer. We know of the Lord's Prayer. We studied it last term in the mornings, didn't we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, etc., etc., Well, you might say that this prayer in John 17 is the other Lord's Prayer. That Jesus prayed knowing that his disciples were listening in. He wanted them to learn from this prayer. And there's a huge amount that we can learn as well. It's striking the context in which Jesus prays this prayer. Jesus has just been teaching his disciples, his close friends. It's the last week of his earthly life. He knows he's going to die and ascend into heaven after he's risen from the dead. He won't be with them anymore on earth. And he's been preparing them. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. There will be a lot of opposition, so be prepared. But if you stick close to me through the Holy Spirit, you will bear fruit and you will be my witnesses. And then John tells us, chapter 17, verse 1, have a look. After Jesus said all this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. After Jesus said this, He's been speaking to people about God and now he's about to speak to God about people. And what a prayer it is, especially given the context. 
Jesus. Remember, he is about to die. He knows he's about to die and he knows what he's going to pray. And to be honest, if I was in Jesus' situation, if I was going to be in that place at that point, I think I would be very quick and urgently praying, help, get me out of here. And yet here is a remarkable prayer that is absolutely jam-packed with content. Thomas Manton, the 17th century pastor, who was also chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, he preached 45 sermons on these words. They are so rich and densely packed. I've got three. And we'll be focusing on the three natural divisions of this prayer over the next three weeks. Jesus begins, firstly, by praying for himself. That's what we're going to be looking at today in verses 1 to 5. Then Jesus prays for the apostles, the twelve disciples, those who were with him at the time. And then in the last section, he prays for all those who will come to know Jesus down the ages. That includes us. Just imagine for a moment, we were in a service like this, and Jesus, Alistair says, and now the Lord Jesus is going to lead us in prayer. And he walks up and he stands up on this platform and he begins to pray. Just imagine, what do you think he'll be praying for us at Hollywell? What do you think he would ask God for concerning this church family? It's going to be very interesting, I think, in two weeks' time to see what Jesus prayed for us as he was about to die. But for now, verses 1 to 5, notice what the prayer is for himself. It's not hard to spot, is it? He begins with it in verse 1 and he ends with it in verse 5. These verses, they work a bit like a sandwich because if you look, they begin and end with a request from Jesus. So, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And then at the end of verse 5, glorify your Son again. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So can you see the link there? The glory of God, simply put, is the revelation of God. So for Christ to be glorified means being seen in his true colours for who he really is. Father, may I be glorified, may people see me for who I really am. Now, that might sound rather arrogant and quite a self-centred request. And certainly, if I was to pray it, then it would be. You know, if I was a bit worried that you are not taking me as seriously as I think you should, you haven't recognised my full qualities. And I prayed, Lord, please may the people of Hollywell really understand just who I am how important I am and how gifted I am. That would be rather self-centred request. But when you look at it a bit further and see what Jesus is praying in verses 1 to 5, it becomes clear that his glory, being glorified, will mean great suffering for him. This is not a self-centred prayer. And he's praying it that the Father would be glorified. It's not self-centred. And he's praying it that people would be saved. 
It's not self-centered. We're going to look at those three themes during our time together. If you ask me for a theme sentence or a summary of what these verses are all about, then this will be my best attempt at it. Christ's glorification will involve suffering for him, glory for the Father, and salvation for his people. Let's begin with the first thing on our outline. Christ's glorification will mean suffering for Christ. Again, notice verse 1. He's looking up to heaven and praying. He's putting into practice what Joseph was talking about this morning. Looking up and he's praying and he's saying, Father, the hour has come. Now, bit of a puzzle. What does he mean by the hour? This is not the first time Jesus has referred to the hour in John's Gospel. Far from it. So, right at the beginning in chapter 2, for instance, there is a crisis at a wedding. And his, and his mummy, he knows who he really is, and he says, Darling, could you sort it out? Because there's a problem. They've run out of wine. And I know you, I know you can deal with these kinds of things. And Jesus replies and says, No, my hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 7, his brothers come to him, and although it seems they're not really believing in him at this point, they've begun to recognise that Jesus is very remarkable. He can do extraordinary things. But he is doing them in Galilee, up north, away from where most people are down south in Jerusalem. He's doing amazing things but in Lancashire instead of London. Sorry, Thackeray's. Anyway, these brothers say to Jesus, isn't it about time you went and revealed your glory so that people can see in a public way just who you are? And Jesus says, no, my hour has not yet come. And then comes the turning point. In fact, can you turn to chapter 12 with me? Chapter 12 and verse 23. Jesus replied, after some Greeks had come and said to the disciples, we want to see Jesus. And we're now told that Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Notice that verse 23, the hour has come. But then very very strikingly, straight away, he starts talking about his death. He says, chapter 12, verse 24, Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls down to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And not surprisingly, as he realises that his glorification will mean his death, Jesus shrinks back somewhat. And he says, chapter 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so now he says back in chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. This is not an accident. 
This has been planned in God's calendar from eternity. He knew human beings would turn away from the living God. And he knew that he would be sorting this out, this situation, in his love by sending his son to die on a cross. And now the hour has come. And Jesus is really praying, Father, will you fulfill your purposes that you have planned? And amazingly, it's God's plan that Jesus will be glorified through suffering his death. You know, we talk about some famous people like this, don't we? Oh, that was their moment of glory. That was their finest hour. That was their defining moment. So, you football fans, think about Lionel Messi. I mean, you could choose a number of defining moments for him, couldn't you? But maybe... The time that he calmly stroked and slotted in that penalty kick that helped Argentina win the FIFA World Cup just last year and thus completing Messi's trophy cabinet. What a glorious moment. Or perhaps how about a few years earlier, Winston Churchill, talking about the defining moment of this nation after the Battle of Britain. He says, in thousands of years to come, they'll say this was their finest hour. A defining moment. And now Jesus, he is saying, my hour has come. This is the moment I was born for. This is my moment of glory. And he's talking about his death. Maybe you're here tonight and the Christian faith is a bit of a mystery to you and you've never really got it maybe you've been coming to churches for many many years and you still haven't really got it or you're completely new to these things we were singing a song early in our service come behold the wondrous mystery well let me tell you this to understand to behold this wondrous mystery you need to understand the cross And one of the things that first struck me, if I'm honest with you, when I was beginning to think about the Christian faith, it's just how odd it is that Christians, they make so much of the cross. You know, of how the biographies of Jesus make so much of his death. I mean, a lot of biographies that you read nowadays, secular ones, for all of their thousands upon thousands of pages... They don't really major that much on the death of the main person the author is writing about. But here we are in the Bible. There are four biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You add them up, chapter by chapter. There are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. 30 of those 89 chapters are given over to the last week of Jesus' life on earth. I know some of you are engineers and you're really into your mathematics, so here's something for you. A mathematician worked this out. 33.7% of the gospel record devoted to 0.66% of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is saying, this is where my whole life is heading to his death. And then what comes with it? His resurrection and his ascension into heaven. 
And he is saying, Father, please fulfill your purposes for this hour. It's not a selfish prayer. For him to be glorified means great suffering for him. But that's not the only reason it's not a selfish prayer. It also means, secondly on our outlines, glory for his Father. Look down with me again at verse 1 and just see how it continues. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Now, remember what was said earlier. The glory of God is the revelation of God. God is invisible. You cannot see God. So just imagine with me for a second, you're very close to the sun. You are not going to be able to stare directly when you are in the sun. You're going to be completely blind. So what you can see of the sun is the glory, the blaze that comes out of the sun. You cannot see God, but you can see the glory of God. The Bible tells us that God's glory is seen, for instance, in nature. Psalm 19, Alistair read this out earlier for us. Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, just before we came to Hollywell Church last summer, uh, whilst you were voting on whether I should be coming or not, we were in Cyprus and we were spending ten nights there and it was mid-30, 40 degrees, that sort of thing. And where we stayed was near a place called Fig Tree Bay. And it's one of those white, sandy beaches, palm trees all over the place, um, and you can enjoy a nice, nice meal and cocktails and all that good stuff on a catamaran cruise. It was amazing scenery, and I just wanted to leave my wife and daughter alone and take my iPhone out and just start recording it in 4K and get 24 frames per second for that cinematic feel. It was just so nice and so glorious. I wanted to capture remembering what the Lord was reminding me of his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can see the glory of God in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalm, the God who's made this world. Now, while the world around us proclaims his goodness, his greatness, Let's face it, it doesn't speak of his character, does it? But Jesus Christ supremely is the revelation of God. And he proclaims and reveals his glory. Early in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, John says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, has made him known. Now, I was born and raised in York, And if you've ever been to York, then you'll know of the Minster, the cathedral. Now, apart from anything else, it has a lovely ceiling. But if you look at the ceiling, if you want to get a good glimpse of it, it doesn't take very long for your neck to get really, really aching. So what they have done kindly is put a mirror at eye level, and you can now look at the ceiling as you look into the mirror. Now, of course, the mirror is not the same as the ceiling, But it is an illustration. Why? Because Jesus, as it were, has brought God to eye level. He is God's divine Son. And as we look at him, we see the glory of God. 
So, in fact, when Jesus' mother went to him in chapter 2 in that wedding crisis and says, Darling, would you sort this problem out because they need wine? Jesus does turn the water into wine and thus reveals God's glory. And John makes this comment afterwards. He says, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed the glory of God. Now, if you know John's Gospel, you'll know that there are seven signs in John's Gospel, and those signs point beyond themselves, beyond the miracles, to something amazing about God. And the ultimate sign is the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, revealing the glory of God in such clarity it is greater than 4K Ultra HD. And therefore, God is glorified on full display. It's shocking though, isn't it? Let's think it. Let's think about this. Think this with me. Isn't it shocking that the glory of God is seen through death on a cross? I mean, if you were a first, if you were a first century person, to think that there could be anything glorious about the cross would be unthinkable. You know, this was a horrific form of execution. And more than that, those who were executed in that kind of way, they were executed for a terrible crime. And so crucifixion was a way of shaming them publicly in front of everyone. So this was a deeply shameful thing, crucifixion. Not glorious at all. And so to put glory and the cross together, those two words, it would be a bit like talking about Clean filth. Those two words, they don't belong together, do they? Delicious vomit. Those words, they don't belong together. Glorious cross. How can that be? How can that be? It's because this was God's plan to save the world. And no other moment in history so revealed the glory of God than that. And so if you don't get that, if you haven't yet got the cross, if you've not understood it for yourself, then you haven't got Christianity. It was when my eyes were opened when I was 16 to understand the glory of the cross and what it means that I finally got it. I understood Christianity And I came to know God personally. The cross reveals the holiness of God. Holiness means absolute perfection. There are so many people around us today who would think something like this. Well, if there is a God, then it's no big deal. Of course I can walk into the presence of God. Of course I can be his friend and be matey with him. Of course, hands in pockets, no problem at all. But, my friends, if I think like that, I've got much too high a view of myself that I've not understand, not understood just how wicked and sinful I am compared to the perfect God. I've turned away from him. I don't deserve his friendship at all. And I've got much too low a view of God. And so as we look at the cross, the cross is saying, you cannot just walk into the presence of God. He's much too holy for that. He's absolutely perfect. But the cross, it also gives us a vision 
of God's justice. You know, someone might say, well, why can't God just forgive us? Why can't he just say, oh, well, forget all about those things you've done wrong. You can be my friends. He can't do that because he's the judge of the universe. And justice demands that wrongdoing is punished. If God was to say, oh, I know what you have done, I know you've done this and you failed to do that, you've done this and that and the other, including living in my world as if you are God instead of me, I know you've done all those things, but let's forget about it. Let's just sweep it under the carpet and move on. That is unjust. And so when we look at the cross, we see the justice of God. He doesn't sweep our sins under the carpet. He directs his anger against human sin at himself in the person of his son. As Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve, what an amazingly just God. But the cross, it also, it's an amazing display of the love of God. When we look at Jesus, the Son of God, dying so that you and I could know God, I for one cannot help but think that God loved us so much that he was prepared for his Son to face that suffering. What amazing love. I mean, again, John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Life. The cross reveals the glory of God, his holiness, his justice, his love. And again, Jesus is praying, John 17, in this prayer he is praying, Father, will you please fulfill your purposes for this hour? Glorify me that I might glorify you. So that what's happening as I die, people will see your holiness, your justice, your love, and they will know this is not an accident as I'm raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. This is your amazing commitment, the hour you planned to save humanity. This is not a selfish prayer of Jesus. It's saying, glorify me, but I know that will mean suffering for myself. But wonderfully, glory for the Father. And then thirdly and finally, salvation for God's people. Now look down at verse 2 with me. For you granted in him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is what the cross of Christ achieves, all right? the salvation and giving of eternal life to all those whom God the Father has given to the Son. He's talking about Christians. That's why the cross happened. This wasn't some kind of divine masochism. It was to achieve a purpose, that people might be saved and receive the life, the eternal life that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, I don't know what you think of the Christian faith for some of you, but I have met lots of people, right, who are fine about the faith. Of course, there are some well-published people who really dislike and don't want Christianity in this world and they want it gone forever. 
But whilst many people have no big problems with the Christian faith, they just simply say it's not for them. They regard it rather like a hobby. So, for example, you're into chess or Catan or Dungeons and Dragons. Great, let's have a game. Let's get pizza. Someone else might be really into hockey. Great, good for you. But that's not my thing. You're a beekeeper. Oh, that is lovely. But I'm a bit worried I might get stung. So you can do your beekeeping hobby. It's not for me, but I'll happily pop round sometime next summer to tax your honey. We can all choose our hobbies and that's all fine and good. doesn't matter which ones we choose. But Jesus is saying, no, the cross is a matter of life and death. Father, the reason why I am going through with this is because this is the hour that makes it possible for people to have eternal life. And you might say at this point, well, I'm not really sure if I really want eternal life. My life's a bit tough at the moment. I just can't imagine that, to be honest. I mean, it's hard enough to get through a week. But to think that's going to go on and on and on forever. That's just awful. And I get that. But actually, actually, my friends, that's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. Let me explain. When he talks about eternal life, eternal life, it doesn't first and foremost mean quantity of life that goes on and on and on forever and ever. But it's about quality of life. Life in relationship with God that wonderfully happens to go on and on forever. Let me read to you John chapter 5 verse 24, which I think is a really lovely commentary on what he's saying here. Listen to what Jesus says here. John chapter 5, verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You may say, well, this is all rather strange, to be honest, because I don't think I'm dead. But the Bible is saying that actually, by nature... After we've pushed God out of our lives and said, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules, all of us are spiritually dead. We might be physically alive, and there's reasonable evidence in front of me to suggest that that is the case for most of you, I think. You're still awake. Well done. But spiritually, once we push God out of our lives, we're dead. And Jesus Christ came into this world to take the punishment of spiritual death that we deserve. So that when we trust in him, we receive life in relationship with God that begins right here on earth. The moment we hear his words and trust in him, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. I'm not worried about that future judgment at the end of time because I put my trust in Jesus who faced that judgment when he died on the cross for me. And so that person has already crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
That happened to me when I was 16. Before then, I think I probably, you know, I vaguely kind of believed in God. It's probably quite distant to me, to be honest. You know, possibly the Creator, but He was a very distant figure. But when I heard the Word of God, I didn't have Christian parents, but a friend that I went to secondary school with and spent a lot of time with, he kept inviting me to come to church and the Christian Union. I kept saying, no, no thanks, no thanks. In the end, he says, there's a free church lunch, come on. And I says, all right, then if it shut you up. But I go, and by my absolute shock, I hear the Word of God. I heard the Word of God. The message of the good news of Jesus Christ and His death for me on the cross. And I believed it. Not there and then. It took me quite a while to investigate the Christian faith, ask lots of questions, wrestle with lots of personal issues. But there came a time that I heard the word of God again and I believed it. And God was no longer a distant figure. I knew him personally as my Father in heaven. He had accepted me. I loved him because I knew he loved me. I knew he had forgiven me for everything I had ever done. I knew where I was heading, not because I was a good person, far from it, but because Jesus had faced my judgment. I was heading to eternity with him. If these things are new for any of you this evening, thank you so much for coming, and we pray and we hope you'll keep on coming and find out more, and that you can have space and time to ask your questions. For those of us who know these things well, let's delight again in these things, in the death of Jesus for us. It's very easy for the death of Jesus, the cross of Christ, to become over-familiar, and we don't really delight in it anymore. That hour that Jesus talks about, that hour which he could have shrunk away from, but he went through it all for the glory of his Father and for the salvation of us. And so, as we take bread and drink wine in a few moments' time, let's delight in him and thank him once again in this physical way. Together, let's look up Look up to him and express our dependence on him and our need of him for our salvation and to live this Christian life. And then let's reflect on what we are living for. I asked at the beginning, what is your passion? As Jesus is about to die, he reveals his passion Father, I just long you'd be glorified and people be saved. And I know that's going to mean my death. But even greater than life itself is my, is my passion for your glory and the salvation of others. And so as we, as we receive bread and wine and then think how we're going to respond, let's be praying that would be our passion that God would be glorified and others would be saved, that we'd make a stand for Jesus, that we would make it known in our place of work or school or university that we are Christians. We believed that God sent Jesus to die for us. Let's stand up for Jesus, the truth 
of this glorious cross. Let's be praying that people would come into our paths, that the Lord would put people in our way, that we can introduce Jesus to them and tell them again and again the love of God for them because of the cross of Christ. We want our whole life, surely, to glorify Him. And we want to look for opportunities to point to Him so that others might come to know eternal life as well as we do. Maybe even think of asking somebody to come to church. Sometimes, you know, we default to thinking, oh, no, 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 they're not going to do that. They wouldn't come to church. You know, they're just not churchgoers. They said, it's nice for you, but it's not for me. But I find again and again and again, people, they do come to church and they recognize there is something about this glorious cross. But they will not come unless we ask them to come. And certainly we hope that over the next few Sundays as we discover more of John 17 and Jesus' prayer, Jesus' prayer, and certainly every Sunday that there will be something that is appropriate for someone who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe think of someone tonight. Go for your contact list on your phone. Think of someone who you live with or who you work with or do education at school or university with and think, maybe I can bring them to church. It's going to take a step of faith. But I think Jesus might be calling you to do it. Just go, think of someone that you can invite to church. But may the longing be in all of our hearts, as a congregation, as a church family, as individual Christians, be the longing of Jesus in this prayer, that God will be glorified and others will be saved, even if it kills us.